Welcome back to the Music Movie Club podcast. I'm John Kissel. With me tonight is Pierce Bauer. What's up? It is January 3rd at the date of recording. And what better time than to look back on the previous year, 2022, and uh, discuss some of our favorite movies, some of our favorite TV shows. Uh, not necessarily from like the, the fall season, the award season, but uh, just anything that we haven't really talked about over the course of the year. I haven't made my uh, top 20 list that I always do. Uh, there's still a few gaps that I need to fill before I can feel comfortable uh, doing that. But uh, Pierce, I, I believe you have made a top a top 10, top 20, whatever list. Yeah, I usually I put out a top, just like my top movies of the year, and it usually varies in length. And I kind of just do a cutoff of like where I think like, you know, movies that I really felt good about. And this year I got I strained it to get to 15. Mm-hmm. And frankly, I'd say maybe like a, like 12 of those movies I actually really feel good about. I think overall, maybe a, a, a not a great movie year. I'll, I, I will be honest. Yeah, that's my next question as far as like quality of, of the year. Cinema, cinema. Yeah, movie-wise first, and then. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I think looking at my list and then kind of looking at pre- previous year's lists, like it's certainly like the the top of the list is like there's I, I'm going to talk about three movies on this pod that like are my top three that I think are like pretty undeniable, very good movies. But I think in you know not counting 2020 because I was obviously an anomaly of a year as far as releases go, like, looking back at, like, 2019, 2018, 2017, pales in comparison, I think, as far as those top movies go. I don't have any, like, five-star movies, really, and, and which, you know, not that there's many of those every year, but, like, there's at least always a couple that I could, like, maybe put in that contention. And this year, it was kind of undeniably, like, you know, my top movie is maybe, like, a four, four-and-a-half-star movie. Mm. Um, yeah, and I think the bottom of the list, too, is really where it struggled, where, like, there's not, I also just don't think there was a lot of depth this year as far as, like, you know, the recent Oscar race, kind of those releases have not, nothing, I think, has really, like, been out, you know, outshined any others. Like, I, I, I you know, the Fablemans I thought was okay. I saw Babylon. I thought that was not good. Like, there's nothing late in the year that really wowed me in that sense. And then looking back at earlier, you know, the first half of 2022, you know, there's some good stuff, but nothing nothing that's really, like, at the end of the year, I, I'm going back saying, wow, that really, that really ha- you know, exceeded expectations. So I, I'm, I'm pretty down, I guess, on, on the 22, 22 movie slate. Yeah, I, I keep a pretty tight spreadsheet, so it's not too difficult for me to make a top 10, top 20 list. And how it usually breaks down is I would call a year good if I have to leave an A- minus off of my top 20 list. That is uh, not always the case. Uh, like, 2021, I thought, was a great year for, for film. But primarily because there were a lot of delays from 2020, and, like, half of my half of my top uh, movies that year were, like, holdovers from the previous year. So not that there's still a little bit of that in 2022, Um there's still movies that you know could have been could have come out as early as like 2019, but were delayed mm-hmm. for whatever reason and are just now coming out. So like going forward, that's not going to be the case anymore. So like 2021 being an anomaly, but like in the 2020s and this like COVID uh, era, uh, yeah, 2022 pretty bad movie year. <laughs> I'm gonna be, I'm gonna have a lot of B pluses in my top 
20, which is sometimes the case um, at the end of uh, at the end of uh, a year. And then as I go and like backfill releases, like if I if I saw something that was released in like 2017, a year or two later, then okay, maybe you know I, I never redo my my top list, mm. but eventually you fill up your A minuses or your A's, and you can push the B pluses into like a top 25, top 30, top 40, whatever. I, I do kind of feel like I've seen a lot of stuff this year. My list is kind of set. There's like three or four movies that. Uh, still qualifies 2022 releases, but are just at the tail end of the year and will show up in Atlanta theaters until uh, like January, early February. I'm thinking, mm-hmm. of like, thinking of like three or four in particular. Go ahead. I always add my kind of notable misses, and there's always that weird thing at the end of the year where like, you know, like something like um, I always think back to like Portrait of a Lady on Fire is like a movie that like came out in like critics' lists but wasn't out to audiences, like that, mm-hmm. those types of things. So like. You know, like um, decision to leave, or like all the ble- beauty and the bloodshed, like are both movies I think I would enjoy very much. You know, in in in, in a sense, uh, I don't think Beauty and Bloodshed is enjoyable necessarily, but like you know what I mean. Um, but I haven't seen either of those, you know. So like, you know, maybe Decision to Leave is that like A plus movie that I just like haven't seen yet. You know, I like Park Chan Wook's movies, but like it, I just haven't seen it. Well, I mean, like that's a good example of kind of like what the year has been like for me, at least where a director like Park Chan-wook who have, who have just absolutely loved his stuff in the past decision to leave is not one of my favorite of his movies. It, it, it seems like the kind of thing where you need to watch it again until they like really wrap your, your head around it. Uh, it's just not as striking as, as kind of every one of his earlier movies. You mentioned the Fablemans. That's, that's again, a perfectly fine movie. And, and Babylon as well. I, I, I loved parts of Babylon, but just a little empty. And he's just not as skilled as as other directors are with like a hedonistic go for broke mm-hmm. of three hour, you know, epic. Ruben Oslin, the director I've liked in the past, like Triangle of Sadness is kind of a dud. And and this is, this is very much a trend for the year. Like directors really getting personal and like delving back into their personal histories and I don't know it's not that Steven Spielberg needs someone looking over his shoulder and like offering notes but maybe someone like James Gray does with Armageddon time uh it's a lot of these a lot of these personal stories that often do really work on me uh it was kind of like oh for five oh for six however many there were this year mm-hmm. I, I enjoyed Armageddon Time most. Well, not, actually, I'll correct that. I enjoyed that more than Fableman's. There's another movie kind of on my list here that I'll talk about that delves into a similar type of movie, but I think in a more uh, soft-spoken kind of way. Mm-hmm. You know, Fableman's is anything but soft-spoken, in, in my opinion, and, and that maybe is the problem with that movie. is a little too, like... And maybe that's just Spielberg himself. But yeah, I, I think, if yeah, the trends of... You know, if you're asking me, like, what were the 2022 movie trends... You know, you made the point earlier, which is like they're kind. Of, it's kind of tough to suggest there are any because, like, the movies that came out this year are like this amalgamation of like projects put together during COVID and projects that were on the back end, you know, because of COVID and are finally getting released. And like, you know, the the biggest one, like you said, was that kind of auteur reflection on their childhood, like Portrait of an Artist type of deal. And like, overwhelmingly, you know, most of those I don't think were great. You know. Um, 
Yeah, I, not, or not, just like those made my top twenty. There's not a, Apollo ten and a half would be the closest one, but that's on the outside looking in. It, that, that's yeah, not, that's at the that would be at the bottom of my of my top twenty, but that's as close as it gets. Right. Yeah, I think there's that, and then like we were talking before this pod started about kind of like the theater experience and and the spectacle side of things, and like there are maybe two movies this year that were really, or maybe three if you count Nope. You know, like I, you know, I think all of all, and I'll talk about one of them here, but like Avatar and Nope were both movies I liked, uh, and I enjoyed going to the theater to see them, and you know, but it's still, it's not, I don't know, there's just something, something lacking. And, and like, not that my my year end list always lines up with the kind of Oscar nominations, but like, just thinking about like, what is there a best picture front runner? And it really feels like a year where there's just like not really a front runner and really no argument for. I can't really make a clear argument for many movies um, that would like you know not like there's the movies I think are the best of the year, but like there's not like a. You know, usually there's some, you know, crossover in the Venn diagram of like, here's what's at the forefront of critics and, and the Oscars and things like that. And here's what I enjoyed this year. And there's just not that much. I don't know. Yeah, I would I would definitely agree with that. There's like one or two exceptions. Mm-hmm. Uh, like for our, we're, we're doing 2022 awards movies for our next trio. And one of those is a movie that we're not going to talk about, but like the Banshees of Inishir in which, mm-hmm. I mean, it's so hard especially with this year and like awards movies, it doesn't seem like any of them are successful or like making any, any money. Yeah. Uh, like the menu just showed up on HBO, but is a little, is, is not really that kind of movie. Banshees is also just now on HBO max, uh, coming from a director who had like a lot of like commercial success with three billboards, uh, a few years ago, like 2020 would be the other year with like, you know, the big asterisk next to it. But there's, I, I can't remember another year where the movies that would theoretically show up on an Oscars telecast are further from what people saw in audience, what people saw in theaters. And, and yeah. I mean, what's actually likely to happen this year is that like, there's a very good case to make for Top Gun Maverick being the best picture. That seems totally possible in my mind. See, I, I totally I agree that that should if that won best picture I would be elated I think that's I think that would be amazing. What I've been saying now for the last like couple of weeks and I've been telling people is like my dark horse bet, which is like the same mindset, but then like we have to remember that like Coda won best picture last year. You mm-hmm. know, like I think Elvis is the movie that really is actually going to fill that, which is like it was a popular movie that like audiences enjoyed and went out to see, and is a total. From what I have actually not seen the movie, from everything I've seen of it, I don't think I would enjoy it. But I think it is the type of movie that might gain traction in the like. Maybe Coda, I think, is a big outlier, but just in the sense of like, what is a movie that like was popular with audiences and would go over well with Academy voters? I think like that could be the like, with no real front runner, a movie like that, or it could be you know, in a better world, maybe it's a Top Gun Maverick. But I think. It's something like an Elvis is going to be that movie, but yeah, you know, that's fine. That was also picked for our next trio. Mm-hmm. Uh, Elvis is one of my two biggest movie surprises this year. I I expected to hate Elvis, mm. and I wouldn't see it because you know for the last like year year and change I've been in the Regal Clown Club or Crown Club, so uh, I watch two movies a month and the subscription is paid for itself, and anything over that is gravy. So. 
fuck it, I'll go see Elvis at uh, the ter- at the Terra R.I.P. Terra Theater in uh, here in Atlanta, and uh, I I kind of liked Elvis <laughs> quite a, quite a bit. Uh, it's a bad movie, I think, by any definition, but there's enough going on in Elvis to make it redeemable. Mm-hmm. Other biggest surprise being, can't believe I'm saying this, uh, Puss in Boots: The Last Wish, <laughs> really good, really good. The, I, the- <laughs> I, I find it funny, like the 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 two movies that kind of had like the balls to like to be put up against Avatar for Christmas were that and Babylon. Puss in Boots is better. It's the better I, movie. <laughs> I've heard good things. I can't believe it. It is like full stop. It's it's it, it's like the best animated movie of the year, unless you count Marcel the Shell with shoes on, which we had talked about before. If you count that as an animated movie, that's the best animated movie of the year. But. It, it's Puss in Boots. Otherwise, like Puss in Boots, best animated Oscar, give it to it. It's it's very good. It is very good. I saw it with my nephews and uh, and a niece over Christmas break in Indiana. I think I liked it the most out of all five of them. Puss in Boots, great movie. <laughs> right. Elvis, fine, but I expected to hate it. Puss in Boots, great. Take the whole family. A lot of fun. Uh, getting into our uh, the, the movies that we've selected to talk about, I've only given out two A's so far this year. It's, it's totally possible that the movies at the top of my A-minus category, when I end up writing about them, I move those over to the A column. I, I've done that before. Uh, that's totally possible. But uh, The Northman still remains an A for me. I feel like a complete, I feel like a total outlier with that. I haven't seen The Northman on any top, top like 30 lists. Mm-hmm. I, I that that I don't understand. I don't understand that at all. And the other movie barely counts as a 2022 release. Petite Maman from Celine Sciamma. Uh I only count that because it was released in theaters in April. If it were released in theaters in February, then I would say, okay, that's 2021 release that just got pushed back for American theaters. But because it's just so late in the year, I'm counting it as a 2022 release. That's my number one movie of the year. At this point, and I've already talked about that as well. Uh, but the other first movie, or the first movie that I'm going to talk about, is I think a movie that I've mentioned offhandedly previously on the Media Crew Movie Club podcast, Bones and All from Luca Guadagnino. Another movie that I am not seeing. I I, ver- I absolutely feel out of the mainstream <laughs> as far as like mm-hmm. love in 2022. That's kind of been the case the last couple years. Um, like dating back to 2019 and my favorite movie of that year was little women. Like that was totally in the mainstream kind of inarguably the best movie of that year. As far as I'm concerned, I'm sure a lot of people put parasite on their list. I discussed parasite and how I feel it's a deeply, it's a great movie that is also somehow overrated here or there. Uh, 2020, my favorite movie was possessor, which uh, was another total outlier. And then 2021, it was the hand of God from Paolo Sorrentino. Uh, another movie that I did not see on anyone's best of list, any site, whatever. Uh, the trend continues. Uh, Bones and All is not my top movie of the year, but it's close. This is a Cannibal Road drama uh, starring Timothy Chalamet and Taylor Russell. The way that they handle the cannibals is it's treated as like an innate thing that they just have to do. They cannot help themselves. They're doing it from... The moment, the, the first, like, as the teeth come in, the cannibalism starts. They're just going to, if if you get a, 
if you get one of these cannibal babies too close to your mouth and you're like a na- or like if you get them too close to your neck and uh, they're a baby, they might just bite your neck out and uh, you're, you'll bleed to death and then the baby will eat as much of you as they possibly can. Uh, so that's kind of the way that the movie gets around like the moral ickiness of uh, following two cannibals on a road trip. And every cannibal they meet on the road has their own rules for living. Some are just straight up chaotic evil. Uh, some are cannibals in training, even though they don't have this innate urge. And some, like Mark Rylance, are just a total weirdo. <laughs> and I say that uh, putting him in a cannibal category. It's a movie with like four or five great performances in it. A lot of uh, like great vignettes, small scenes on this road trip. And like fundamentally, it is a romance that works as well as any romance I've seen in recent memory. Uh, they, Chalamet and Russell, uh, like it, like it fits with their urge to eat people. They are just <laughs> all. They are so. They have so much chemistry uh, that that you forget that they're you know like traveling across the country eating people. <laughs> it's kind of perfectly fine. Whatever they have to do to keep this relationship going. Like I was just so completely bought into this like bone deep romantic story from a director who. Luca Guadagnino, who is, like, just demonstrating with his, like, fifth movie in six years, seven years, how excellent he is at, like, getting to a sensual, uh, like, a sensual diamond core at the bottom of his movie. Like, these are people that just want to be around each other, want to hang on each other, and when they're, like, making out with each other, it's like they are eating each other's faces off. And it's so passionate and romantic and gory and surprising uh bones and all Lo- absolutely loved it have you seen this movie pierce i have not seen it it's one of my misses um you know i think from the log line i was like this is not for me um but i've heard many good things it it does seem like a movie that's been lost in the shuffle a bit maybe absolutely. in part because when it was released i don't know like maybe if this was like came out in the first half of the year it would have maybe gotten more, you know, a little more notice be, just because of like, it would be less saturated with other movies, but it does seem like Luca Guadagnino, great filmmaker, Timothy Chalamet, a movie star and, you know, Taylor Russell, who I don't, I don't know if I've seen her in other things. I probably have, but like she was in waves. Yes. Okay. That's right. Yeah. Uh, which I liked, I liked her in that, um, you know, movies is a little flawed, but she's good. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it seems like there's, like, you know, nothing bad besides maybe the cannibalism. Um, but, yeah, I just think it just missed because maybe the time of year. But, I mean, I, sh- I will at some point see it. It is fitting that this is on your list because you love disgusting I, disgusting things like cannibalism. So, I, 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 you know, makes sense. I really go for this kind of shit. Like, um, <laughs> intense, like, super intense horror movies. That's kind of where I'm at these days. Mm-hmm. Like, that's if that's what, and like, we're, I'm gonna talk about another one of these here shortly. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm identifying a type for myself. Right. It's this. What's <laughs> the last wish? Puss in boots. Yeah. This, you know, there's, yeah, it's all there. Yeah, and the cannibal movie and the technological uh, surgery fetish movie. <laughs> I guess we should we should spoil that Puss in Boots eats Shrek alive. <laughs> 
which is uh, really it's really uh, fucked up how he does it. It's it's. Yeah, fucked I mean, up. there's a Shrek reference in Puss in Boots, and it's the worst part of the movie. And sadly, uh, sadly, no, it is not Puss in Boots comment on how tasty <laughs> dumbass ogre was. Uh, Pierce, what's your what's your first thing? So my first thing is the movie I have ranked number one on my list of movies. It's kind of the critics' favorite movie of the year. I, I get the sense of at least like the film Twitter letterboxed kind of crowd, which mm-hmm. is Tar. Um, Tar. It stars Kate Blanchett, directed by uh, Todd Todd Field. Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, uh, about a. How do we describe it? Lydia Tarr is a conductor of... Uh, EGOT winner. <laughs> EGOT winning, yes. EGOT winning conductor of the... Uh, appointed the first female head of the Berlin Orchestra. And it is a film that kind of chronicles her... I don't know. Like, I guess you would call it a just, like, tragic fall of, of, from, you know, being this prestigious conductor to, like, to her downfall over the course of the film based on kind of her decisions and treatment of, you know, her, her, her cast. I don't know what you call it, her orchestra. It's a movie that is like kind of what I like about it. Why it's the, why it's my favorite movie. What I think it does very well is it can, it kind of is like, as far as most movies out of this year goes, it kind of holds a couple top categories for me. Like I think the script is just one of the most well-written movies of the year. I think the, the directing is just phenomenal. There's like, you know, there's a pretty now popular scene in the movie that is like this long one take of Lydia Tarr, you know, l- teaching a course at, I think it's like Juilliard or, you know, or one of those, I don't know, mm-hmm. not Juilliard, um, whatever the orchestra equivalent is, um, is this long one take in this conversation about, you know, art and, and I guess cancel culture or whatever you want to call it of like that type of stuff. And it's a really great scene of just like flexing, directorial skills and writing and then Kate Blanchett I think is just the clear standout for the number one best performance you know of any any movie any tv show anything I've seen this year she is just like phenomenal in this movie I think that's really where this movie shines is that like her character is this like deeply flawed and fascinating kind of subject to watch on screen you know there's this common thing with this movie where a lot of people saw it and like assumed that tar is like a real person that this is like a you know a a drama of a real event because just because she feels so again just like so lived in and real as a character and it it, the movie does a really great job of kind of like i don't know much about composers or you know modern orchestras right like i don't know about that world but this movie does such a good job of like putting you in that world and kind of like it is this kind of high society like you know the movie opens with this like um, what is it like the 92nd Street Y kind of interview with like a yeah. New Yorker, like the whole you know? the whole interview? Yes, it is like a 20 minute you know interview. It, it it which like sounds boring, but when you watch this movie, like it is captivating, just because it's got this phenomenal script and directing, and so its ability to kind of place you in this world and and what seems kind of like. You know, your assumption, it's a long movie. It's like three hours long, maybe. But like, and, and the subject matter and kind of like, it seems a little like, like highfalutin or something. Like you'd think it would be a little disarming in that way, but it's very watchable, I found, which I thought is like a real strength. It's just watchable. And I thought like, it kind of, not that I like, how would I put this? Like, I'm not saying I uh, agree necessarily with like the movie's statement that it is ultimately making, because I don't 
don't think it's totally clear what that statement is, but like it is, it is one of the few movies of this year that really left me like, I just think it left with like a very thoughtful kind of like post post viewing experience. Whereas I think a lot of other movies this year that I just merely enjoyed, you know, but then didn't really had nothing to think about afterwards, like something like a Banshees of Inisherin or a Nope. I felt like I just kind of got those movies in the moment, whereas Tar kind of leaves you with something. And I, I think that's its real strength. So I, I really loved it. I know critics really loved it. And I assume Kate Blanchett is going to win an Oscar, which she very well should. And, and I would recommend it, 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 you know, despite its daunting, you know, runtime and, and to some, maybe the subject matter is a little alienating. I think it is far more watchable than, than you would assume. Yeah, I would agree with all. Like it came up in our recent Sight and Sound uh, episode or podcast episode mm-hmm. as like uh, as like an example of slow cinema. I don't think that's correct. I don't. I wouldn't call mm-hmm. it slow cinema at all. Like it's way, way too kinetic. And seeing like there are short scenes in Tar. There's a lot of scenes in Tar, but some of them are only like 10, 15, 20 seconds long. That's just not what slow cinema is. And a lot of stuff does happen. Like she is, she starts the movie like in complete command and complete control but like before the movie and during the movie like all the seeds have been planted Mm -hmm. and you watch them sprout and explode or whatever metaphor you want to use it's it's Uh, a really great in like in media res type of movie where like as it goes on you discover like it all kind of it does a really nice job of doing that storytelling yeah and like you mentioned how it doesn't hold your hand through this very uh like arcane high society world like the whole idea of auditioning behind a curtain is like a, which is something that happens repeatedly in tar, like uh, aspire orchestra members who, who, who are not allowed to be seen by the people judging them. Like that's a recent development. And I remember like, I don't know, listening to like a fresh air episode about changes in, in, in um, the symphony world along these lines, like to make things fairer and to reduce bias. And uh, the movie doesn't explain why this is happening. You just have to put it all together and you have to put it together. Like why it's important for this scene in this moment and why it's important for the character and how Lydia Tarr like gets around this, this way that supposedly reduces bias. And I mean, it's funny. Yes. It's funny. I like it's it like one, as far as like final scenes of movies go, one of the best, I think of the year. Absolutely. Yeah. It's I I like I I think another, another example scene that does not hold your hand. You just have to like put it together that like okay, I have a general sense of where she is and what she's doing now. Someone else has done this comparison, I'm sure, but like it's in that like kind of it's, it's it reminds me of like Phantom Thread, where it's almost like you can almost view this movie as just like a a long setup to just like one punchline, you know, mm-hmm. and the movie just like kind of ends on that note, ends on a note, but uh, it's it's. I just thought, yes, I agree. The ending is very good. I think we, t- we, I think I brought this movie up in talking about Whiplash, which like you could certainly make a double feature out of those two movies. I feel like because it's just like I, the movie ultimately is a statement on you know the cost of like great art or just greatness or like you know a lot of people have made the comparison of like as a film, it's obviously commenting on like auteur theory and like you know the, who is really behind this great whatever it is, piece of art, film, whatever. And and I think what the movie ultimately presents in this, like, you know, this ongoing discussion, I think it does, like, it's just a nice added, like, 
chapter to that i don't know what you'd call it, like chapter to that debate or whatever like it just it, it this in whip the way that whiplash kind of did as a movie for me like i just really like what it's portraying as far as like you know it's i don't I don't think it's a spoiler, I guess, if no one has seen it and wants to figure this out for themselves. But, like, the movie does this really interesting thing that's kind of um, abrasive at first, where, like, the opening credits of the movie look, are, are basically what the end credits of a movie would look like, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. And, and Todd Field's doing this to, like, front load the idea of, like, here is everyone who was responsible for making this movie, and now I'm going to show you an entire story of someone who is the, like opposite you know the the opposite of that right the idea of like one person this one great person at all costs whatever they they are the ones producing this great thing right by any means necessary you know if it's a if it takes abusing your your you know your your mentees or whatever or whatever you know that's and i just think that that is like such a perfect kind of statement that todd fields does you know at the beginning of this movie to kind of like put this idea into your head, right? Of like making this comparison of like Lydia Tarr to the filmmaker, you know? Uh, there is a very long piece in Slate about how past a certain point in Tar, the movie becomes like a, a ghost story mm-hmm. or like a uh, uh, whatever, Jason Mansukas, a, a Jacob's Ladder <laughs> where the yes. character's dead and doesn't know it. Uh, a compelling case. I, I I don't. I mean, I know. Not can I can I push? Not compel. I I like that you idea. So? In like a, I like it in like a figurative sense of like you are watching someone almost in like a Macbeth or like a King Lear almost of like watching the slip away from them in like mm-hmm. a ghostly sense. But like or, or like the the idea that you've always been afraid of this and your personal hell is having to go through. Yes. what you imagine you deserve yes the self-fulfilling proce- prophecy almost yeah, yeah. It, it it i like i like that reading of it but like in a literal sense like no that's that's stupid <laughs> yeah that's never sorry, made sorry sleep yeah it's never made a movie better where like a character is dead and doesn't know it and the movie doesn't like tell you outright one way or another like if the sixth sense ended with no reveal mm. i don't know is that a better is movie. that a con- I mean, are there other examples? I don't even know. I, Jacob, uh-huh. I've never seen Jacob's Ladder. I know the, uh, you know, shout out to How Did This Get Made. I know that, I know it's a repeated reference, but are there other movies that have this this debate of was a character dead the whole time? Uh, nothing comes what, to mind. The, what a strange movies. thing to be latched on to, to Tar. What, a, what a, like, <laughs> I don't know. Like, I did, I like, certainly did, did you, not. Like, the, like, you know the moment. Like, did you read, you read the article? I, I did not read the article, but I think I, I got the gist from Twitter. Like, yeah, that, it's the, when just, she goes down into the thing, yeah. Yeah. I don't but, know. And I, I just didn't find any of that. There's, like, strange ghost story kind of stuff all throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. But I just, I just read that as dreams. Like, it's not really happening. Yeah. The very yeah. dreamer. It, it all just, it, it, yeah, it's unnecessary. It may, uh, it, may, it might be the the English, you know, the British literature teacher in me, but like this movie does really read as a tragedy in like the classic Shakespearean sense. Mm-hmm. And I would say, like again, Macbeth is a good parallel there. Of like those dream sequences are pretty reminiscent of like, you know, uh, is Lady Macbeth like washing the blood off her hands that's not there. You know, like that type of. It's like that same kind of ghostly spectral idea, you know. But I I think this movie is not doing it 
in a literal sense. Whereas yeah. like maybe a Shakespeare drama, like there were actually ghosts, you know, stuff like that. But yeah, doesn't matter. There. Yeah. Uh, my next thing is uh, the latest from David Cronenberg, who hasn't made a movie since 2015. Uh, in 2022, he released a movie called Crimes of the Future, starring Viggo Mortensen, Leah Seydoux, and a very weird Kristen Stewart. Uh, okay, so Crimes of the Future starts with a little kid, a little boy, who uh, eats a wastebasket, and then his mom smothers him in his bed. <laughs> like, he eats a plastic wastebasket and really just loves it, just chowing down on this thing. And uh, the movie goes from there uh, to Viggo Mortensen, who is like a performance artist in a future that is heavily polluted and uh, it has has mutated humans to the point where no one can feel pain anymore. So the form that Viggo Mortensen's performance artistry takes is like public surgery. Or no, that's not totally accurate. Like he's so mutated that his body keeps forming useless organs that are then taken out by his surgeon slash girlfriend slash partner in artistry, uh, played by Leia Seydoux. And that's what functions as high art in this world. Here's how much I clicked with Crimes of the Future. At a certain point in the movie, you see an example of a bad version of this kind of performance art, where it's just a guy with ears grafted onto him, and he's like just doing like Euro trash dances for people. And the movie is 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 able to so clearly convey why what Vigo is doing is good and what Ear Man is doing is bad. The world building in Crimes of the Future is just incredible. It's so wonderful to have <laughs> David Cronenberg, a singular talent and a singular mind, back making movies. Uh, there is so much weird shit in Crimes of the Future. There is so much confrontational stuff that does not have to be included, but that is just because he is the provocateur's provocateur. And I have so much respect for just uh, that kind of, this is what I want to do, be freaked out by it, that's kind of fine, that's what I want, but I could give a fuck about your taboos or what you find offensive, this is just going in the movie. Crimes of the Future. Have you seen this, Pierce? Oh, and, and another really great ending, by the way. Another really great ending. Yeah. you. I think you could, if you wanted, you could take my answer from Bones and All and just kind of clip that audio into this moment, sure. which is, again, like, no, I have not seen it. Uh, I read the <laughs> logline, and it was very much not for me. Uh, I I I'm sure it is good. I may watch it at some point. I do like no. I'll, I'll be serious. I we did we talked Cronenberg on here. We did. Right? Yes. We did three movies. I do like Cronenberg. I respect the body horror. Uh, it is again not my cup of tea necessarily, but when done very well, I, I admire it. Uh, for me, like I think my I, I he's a great director. More for like I love Eastern Provinces and History of Violence. Like. Mm-hmm. You know, th- that's th- that's more my style. But um, Crimes of the Future seems to really lean into the other side of his taste. And I'm I'm fine. I'm fine being on the outside looking in on this one. Totally fair. It's very much an existence, which is one of the movies we talked about in our mm-hmm. David episode. It's in an existence neighborhood where it just we're going to make this as weird and uncomfortable as possible. 
and it's and somehow it's still going to work fantastically well. Uh, I mentioned Kristen Stewart. Her, every word that comes out of her mouth is a choice, mm -hmm. uh, and a weird one at that. Just a totally counterintuitive choice. Uh, it's it's just so much fun to watch her making these decisions that nobody else would make, but it totally fits with just the the world of the movie that again I want to stress makes perfect sense for uh for 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 the way that Cronenberg like constructs it like just every piece fits it all makes sense and by the time that he gets to the ending and the character is like having a revelation and this like very strange bone chair that like rattles and uh shifts his weight in it's it's you're with him completely as he's having this realization despite being in this like uh piece of furniture like directly out of like a like a bosch painting or something equally strange a medieval torture device it all just it all totally clicks uh and this movie has just been rising and rising in my estimation since i saw it in i want to say june uh and in a minus but who knows by the time i write about it it might it might crack that egg just because it's <laughs> it's there's nothing else like it nothing else like it um, here's your next thing. So another movie that's at the top of my list is After Sun. Uh, have you seen this? I have, yes. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll talk about it in depth then, because I, I don't. If someone hasn't seen it, you should see it. But um, After Sun comes from Charlotte Wells, who it's her uh, feature directorial debut. I had not heard of her before. Uh, it stars Paul Mescal from Normal People, which I enjoyed quite a bit, and I also really liked his performance. Um, he plays a father, a young father, taking his daughter on a, you know, his daughter who you get the sense does not live with him. So this is their time together. Um, he takes his daughter on a vacation to, like, Turkey, I think. Um, and it is kind of this movie that is just told through sort of, like, vignettes of this, like, weekend or week together, um, both through, like, this girl's, you know, the young girl's memories and this, like, v, it uses this um, storytelling device of, like, a camcorder, you know, footage that she is taking throughout this vacation. Uh, what this movie does really well, why I liked it so much, is it just really captures this feeling of, like, youth, like, especially for this young girl who's, like, maybe 10, 11, I think, of, like, joy, of of just being a child, of kind of, like, being with her father, but then this, like, just underlying melancholy of like knowing that something is not right or that like, and there's no real big dramatic piece to this movie. There's no reveal really. There's no like, you know, there's no huge plot development. It is just about this daughter and her father spending this time together that you just get the sense is fleeting and will be her last Maybe not literally her last moment with her father, but like this, it, it is just a movie that is about the slow passage of time, right? And like things or people coming in and out of your life. And like it just tells it in such a delicate, kind of beautiful way. It is like it, if Tar is a movie that is like kind of boisterous and has this huge performance at the center, After Sun is kind of an opposite of that, where it is like it is soft-spoken and Paul Mescal's performance is like devastating, but in a very subtle, again, melancholy kind of way. 
um, I think he gives like probably one of my other favorite performances of the year, just in the way that like, again, it's never really explicitly stated in the movie, but it is just so to me, at least from my own personal experiences and from what I've seen in the world, like this is one of the best portrayals of just like depression I've ever seen in a movie where it is, it is not, you know, huge bouts of crying and and monologues about sadness it is just an underlying current of like despair of like a sullenness behind the eyes of just like little moments like that throughout this movie that are just like heartbreaking and it just ends on a really to me at least i I thought the ending just ends on this like devastatingly kind of beautiful note about you know there's a there's a polaroid photo that is taken that we slowly watch you know the camera lingers on it as it like you know, develops, you know, comes into time. And it's like, that is what lasts, you know, these memories, these moments, they are, they are happening in short time and then they are gone. And like, I just, I, I thought it was really excellent for like, again, a movie year that I think left me with not many things to latch onto. This movie has stayed with me su- surprisingly. Like when I was watching it, I was a little distant to it at first, but as, the, as it goes on, it grows on you. So I'm curious what you thought of it. Cause I, I, I really liked it. And I know a couple other critics, it has kind of gotten, you know, some spots at the top of lists and stuff, but I, I liked it quite a bit. Yeah, this was the co-number one pick okay. uh, for film spotting. The two hosts of film spotting both picked After Sun. I saw this at the Plaza Theater in one of their smaller theaters that was maybe half full. I heard sniffling as I was walking out of the theater, and I could not for the life of me figure out what people were so sad about. <laughs> this movie did not this movie is the uh drive my car this for 2022 a movie mm. that i just don't i did not get it the movie that uh made me feel dumb <laughs> that i uh am seeing all of this praise for that i am just not connecting with at all i like it well enough i agree with the performances i like these kind of uh weekend in time movies where nothing is necessarily happening especially when like kids are involved and like the the child actress whose name i don't have in front of me uh she's great Mm -hmm. i i I like that part of it uh where she's not really coming to any great realizations necessarily about her dad this just happens to be through the lens of future girl who is arriving at the same age as her father from this period of time Mm -hmm. Uh, she's thinking about this because it was the last time she saw her father, correct? I, do, I don't know. If, I, I'd have to rewatch. I don't know if that's ever explicitly stated or implied, but it certainly is like the idea of like, this was the last maybe true moment they really had together. I, I, I mean, the movie offers so little about him. Mm-hmm. That I can't, I just can't, I couldn't, care about him like he doesn't want to sing karaoke with his daughter that sounds fine like sometimes you don't want to do karaoke that's fine i that doesn't bother me uh the guy the guy is complaining about how he can't spend more money but they're in they're in turkey they're like in a foreign and i understand this is easier for europeans yeah they're in turkey they're not from turkey like it's a long way away they're at a resort they don't have the all-access pass. He can't afford to buy the $850 pound whatever rug. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
I mean, I'm re- I'm recording this podcast on a thirty dollar rug. <laughs> I, I just I get, yes. I, I couldn't find any actual problems he had. He has all these meditation books. So how I read the character from that lens is that okay, like he's trying, like he's trying different ways to potentially feel better, but not having enough money to like buy a rug in a foreign country and uh, be able to get the all you can eat buffet. I don't know. <laughs> and like the, the, the device of the movie where it's the, it's the adult daughter remembering all of this. Like the movie doesn't stick to that. There are scenes of the dad by himself. There are lots of scenes of the dad by himself. So like, where is all that happening? Is she just imagining that this is what he did in this period when she wasn't around, like when they're spending time apart from each other? Again, like the the parts of this girl, like on the cusp of adolescence, observing older teens and observing her father, I thought that all all that was was really good. But as the movie ended, I just could not find like an emotional ledge to balance myself on i i just i I left the movie just feeling nothing which based on again the sniffling in the theater as i was leaving and the like catastrophic reviews that i'm reading from critics who were like oh gosh i was just a complete mess after after sun i could not get my i could not get myself there Mm -hmm. even even like that's fair after I, I just, I could not feel that bad for either of these people because everything seems mm-hmm. fine on this trip I, because of exactly, I think what you're saying, where like, there isn't the big blow up. There isn't the big speech. There isn't the big breakdown. Everything thinks right. seems fine on this trip. Why did they not see each other again ever after this? Did he kill himself? Like that's totally vague. No, I agree. I think, I think the vagaries of the story both help and hurt it. That's right, right? Like, I, I, I also found myself, especially when I was first, like, the first half, there were definitely times where I was like, is there something I'm missing here? And I think as it goes on, what I do like about it, like, you mentioned this idea of, like, observing, I think, echoes throughout this movie in a way that, and the filmmaking that I really liked, which was, like, it's almost like the movie itself, I don't know how autobiographical it is to to the director, right? But it's almost this idea of, like, this uh, this like in this moment when you're an 11 year old girl you do not understand you do not know like what your father is going through or how he feels or like you know those types of things right and then using this movie as almost like a again like here's what i observed and now i am piecing together that part of my life is just i do feel like why it resonates with people so much is that that just feels so true to real life of like the way that we and not even like like, again, like, there's no, like, traumatic incident in this movie, but, like, the way people do process trauma or just any part of their childhood or whatever it is, right? Like, this, almost in the style of filmmaking itself and the way it tells the story, it just does this, like, interesting, like, echo chamber of how we, how we I don't know, how we investigate our memories or something of that nature, which, like, I agree with you. I don't think this movie, like, totally you know, is the gut punch that maybe everyone says it is. But I, I do, I found it very interesting in that way. I, I I went in expecting 
to be like devastated by it because that was like the reputation at the time and i i couldn't i could not believe how cold it left me like to the point where i it's hard for me to even imagine someone having that reaction <laughs> mm-hmm which is exact. Which is the exact same place as where Drive My Car landed uh, last year. Yeah, I, I can see that. What I, I like that After Sun is a simpler, because I, I I get what you're saying with like the the Drive My Cars of of the world. You know, the, I get what you're saying. But I what I like and and going forward too is like I like this is a simpler movie, and I'm certainly I'm I'm in for whatever. Um, I forget her name already, but whatever the director does next, I'm interested. Mm. Oh I yeah, think there yeah. is like a a real consideration behind the filmmaking in this, which I which I admired. Like the um, the ability to like yeah. get those kind of performances out of, especially the 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 girl, Frankie is, Corio is her name. Yeah, that that's that's a mark of a real talent. Yeah, yeah, she was really great. Um, a lot of what if this to Fish Tank, which is Andrea Arnold's first movie, mm-hmm. is a far more plot heavy it's not that great of a comparison but as far as like an english female director finding a young actress and like getting a uh, like this like groundbreaking performance out of her sure Mm -hmm. but yeah but there's like so much so much more happens in fish tank yeah i thought about different in tone and, and story but i thought about the florida project which is a movie i liked but i think just like what this movie does that i liked about that movie as well is kind of the way it creates the you know the 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 world we see as children versus the reality as adults you know and like mm-hmm. and like this and this movie does it in a far more subtle way and like that movie Florida Project does it at, you know almost to overkill by the ending I think is how many people felt yeah. but um but I, I quite liked it. I, I I thought that aspect of it works very well. All right, we're going to transition to TV for our next thing. Uh, mine is Atlanta, which aired its third and fourth seasons in 2022. Third season uh, took place primarily in Europe, as as our usual gang is going on an international tour over there, with four episodes totally disconnected from the usual cast, just one-offs of kind of, I guess you would say, like racial parables happening back in Atlanta. Uh, and the, but the fourth season was uh, Atlanta back to normal, totally plotless. You'd never know what an episode is going to be as uh, you fire it up. And some, I, I, I absolutely think some of like the best stuff that Atlanta ever did, as far as uh, in that in that especially that last season, as far as as far as very strange one-offs. That's much like Crimes of the Future, like no one else would think to make than the people, than Donald Glover and the other people behind Atlanta and Stephen Glover, his brother. Um, like the idea of Goofy, be, the, the Goofy movie being this like landmark of black animation <laughs> at a brief moment when uh, the CEO of Disney was a black guy whose passion project was the Goofy movie and filmed in a way that like tar you could maybe be convinced that it was all real <laughs> and i kind of want to watch the goofy movie again i haven't since that episode aired just to i mean from my memory it does kind of seem like all that stuff is there the, oh yeah yeah <laughs> you've I, watched the goofy movie since that episode it's, of Atlanta. <laughs> it's, I, I have not i've seen it i saw it growing up i watched it a bunch as a kid yeah me too. Uh, a big i was a bigger fan of a totally goofy movie the sequel the, the goofy sequel is your puss in boots the last wish Pretty much, yeah. 
Okay, like a spinoff, yeah. sequel of a spinoff that somehow... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Holly Shore does the voice of a character. Oh, wow. It's pretty good. Um, but I, I, there, I, it has been... Atlanta, the episode of Atlanta did not invent the idea that, like, a goofy movie is heralded as, like, the black dad Disney movie. That it's a, a Disney movie about a black dad. And, like, I had heard that before, but, yeah, that episode n- nails it. Yeah, and, like, the more typical Atlanta episodes... Um, the finale is like barely a series finale, but one of the absolute funniest episodes of Atlanta that they've ever put out. Uh, a lot of like really thorny ideas in this last season, both in the somewhat derided uh, Europe episodes and and the fourth season. Just like they kept coming back to this idea that there are all these black grifters in the world, and good for them <laughs> for getting paid. Mm-hmm. And that's a very confrontational idea in 2022. I have not been able to shake it at all. I'm I, And I'm kind of being convinced that that is very much the case. But again, like the stance of Atlanta is like, you know, you get yours. And mm-hmm. uh, it's just, it's it's not the kind of minority-led show that is in like a, like a girl boss, yassified, uh, DEI, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, like it, it's warts and all it's warts and all storytelling and there's nothing like it else on TV and there who knows maybe there won't be anything else like it in the future uh, it sounds like you kept up with Atlanta as it aired these last two episodes Pierce you, yeah uh, you know weirdly so I watched the third season as it aired and like in full honesty did not love it I, I almost would call it outright bad and I don't know if it's totally the show's fault I, I just felt like it it definitely felt like it was a year or two behind the cultural moment, especially those one-off episodes. I just thought for each yeah. one, I felt like within the first five to 10 minutes of the episode, I got the joke, you know, and like that those jokes had just been made repeatedly for like the last two years, you know, in part because of like 2020 and then COVID because they couldn't film, I imagine. And like, it got released late. Like it just felt behind the eight ball a little bit. Yeah. But yeah, those were really hit and mess. And then the like the the europe episodes themselves i felt were just missing i think what i came to realize when watching the fourth season was like the show is just better when it's set in atlanta like it you know it's almost like a no-brainer but it's like i just felt like it, the show lost kind of and, and and i mentioned this i think on a previous pod i felt really it felt really noticeable that you could start to see the strings a little of like you didn't get as many episodes with all four main characters together because yeah. one of them's filming a Marvel movie and the other one's got an overall deal with Amazon and the other one's, you know, whatever Zazie Beats is doing. Like, it just became clear that, like, this, this, that season was not, it almost felt like piecemeal together a little bit. Um, and, and so I, I honestly, like, coming out of it, I was almost like, you, I almost would say, like, I just thought it was almost a bad season of TV. It's still, like you just mentioned, like some of those episodes still feature like just brilliant, you know, brilliant stuff and brilliant ideas and like execution. And all four of those lead performers are like four of the best performances that have been on TV in the last decade all on one show. Like, you know, uh, Brian Terry Henry especially is just, I, I think, throughout the entire show, phenomenal, um, a, you know, a revelation of a performance. But coming out of the season, I was a little down on it. Um, and then the fourth season, frankly... I did not watch week to week and I just let it pass by. And then over my break, 
in like a weekend i watched all of it and you know i'm still a little undecided like it it certainly was an improvement from the third season for me i think being back in atlanta was obviously needed uh, i thought it gave a little more opportunity for like the four characters to kind of be together and for there to be like i felt like the third season featured a lot more of like bottle episodes and side stories whereas like like i really liked the camping episode that was just zazie beats and and donald glover together that like felt just like a real a piece of the real world versus like we're doing another episode where there's like a mysterious twin peaks-esque underground you know like fourth season added a little more variety and by the end of it, I did really enjoy the ending. Again, like you mentioned, it, it does what I think is a smart thing for any TV show to do, which is like it kind of just ends on a normal episode, which like for Atlanta is not a normal episode by any other television standard, but like a normal Atlanta episode, you know? Uh, and and I did, by the end of it, I was back and thinking like, you know, what a revelation this show is. It's remarkable that, it, you know, to your point of like the over, this like motif of black grifters getting away with one, you could say that about this show, right? Like this show, what it did, what it's saying, you know, the fact that an episode of television like Teddy Perkins gets to exist on like FX or Hulu or whatever the fuck, like that in its way is it's like its own grift, right? And like, that is the remarkable part of the show is that it had these big lofty ideas that totally broke the mold of like what a television episode could be or what a season of television could be. And it just executed on such a high level. So I, you know, I don't think the fourth season hit the highs of the first or second for me, but it was back to, oh, right, this show is a fucking revelation. Yeah. I haven't rewatched the first or second season. Um, mm-hmm. or the fourth is really high in my mind right now. It's, it's yeah. like, especially like bits and pieces. Like the, the goofy stuff, fantastic. Finale, great. Um, and if I had... If I like brought up a list of a list of the episodes I did like, but it I, I would I would agree that it got off to a slow start. Like, even even like as someone who's lived in Atlanta for like six years, I don't know. I get around Atlantic Station fine. <laughs> oh yeah, yes. <laughs> that's not a confusing place to me. That make that place makes perfect sense. It's easy. Um, and that was like a whole plot in in one of those premiere episodes, like getting lost in Atlantic Station. Uh, no, I've never. I've never had that issue. I go there all yeah. the time. <laughs> I, get, I would say like a good, I, I've always tried to like temper my, you know, cause I, when those first, when the first season came out, it really was like, for me, like growing up in Atlanta and, and, you know, I was a huge Donald Glover fan back to like, I remember uh, like listening cause I was a huge community fan. And then through mm-hmm. that, I that found all, Derek. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah. And I like, I through that. I found Derek comedy. And then I like when he first started rapping. I remember like I remember where I was, you know, at the at working at the snack bar at my pool over a summer, where me and another kid found his YouTube videos of like his early rap songs. Like, like I was a huge Don Glover fan, and then for him to make this like kind of like this, you know, I don't know, like all encompassing text about the city I grew up in was like kind of unreal. It still is kind of surreal, but like that first season was just, um, you know so groundbreaking and i've always tried to temper my like how do i feel about it versus like is is it just that i understand the references you know like like atlantic station like is it just that that hits close to home for me or is the show just really that great and i think the europe season kind of helped me understand that i was like 
it's not just my own personal connection. It's the show's connection to the city and its culture that like when it is rooted in this place, the culture that it's commenting on, the show is at its best versus, you know, when it's like a show about the music industry and touring, touring in Europe, less interesting, you know, less, maybe less relatable just to me, but also I think in general, the show mm -hmm. felt a little less grounded in a sense, but no, it's it's the, the the second season really to me is like the I, I went back and watched it some time ago and was just like, oh, yeah, this is again, Teddy Perkins, I think, is one of the best TV episodes ever made. The second season, I think, really hit the highs of those like bottle episodes or single character one offs that were just like, we're going to take you down a weird rabbit hole within the city of Atlanta that is like mysterious and ephemeral and and like, again, like ends on just like a you know, weird note, right? Like the episode where uh, Paperboy like just like walks through the woods and like sees his like mm -hmm. the ghost of his body. Like that stuff was just so good. And then it felt like by the fourth season, there was just too many of those, too many of those like attempts. You know, like like the D'Angelo, a total a total question mark for me. I didn't get that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I mean I I know D'Angelo. But um, okay. I'm not but stuff like that, like episodes like that, where it was just like, OK, so we're in another, you know, even the final episode, like with the black sushi restaurant, like another like monologue from a character that's doing this kind of weird, like, I don't even know how you describe it. But you know what I'm saying? Like that, that, that kind of crutch that they began to fall on, it felt like. Mm. But but it, again, I guess to sum this all up, like four season, very good. The show as a whole very like groundbreaking incredible um yeah. so yeah it's it's great i think in like i think there's a world where like in five years when i haven't really like stopped thinking about the show i will go back and watch it all and just be like holy shit i can't believe this was on tv you know mm -hmm. yeah and like the last thing to say is uh to like further or to further comment on like how it represents the city uh, like how atlanta otherwise is presented in spite of like all of the film production that is here what's presented is just like parking lots generally or like totally nondescript mm -hmm. and every time like e the the sushi restaurant being just one example like a place where you would go have a meal and like be staring at the popeyes across the street the whole time uh that just that geography makes so much sense to me having lived here for you know the, the years that i've lived here uh the the malls that they go to or like the the strip malls that they go to mm -hmm. those they're just they're real places and i i i just so appreciate that <laughs> not being a lifelong resident by any means but it makes atlanta feel like a place in the same way that like when they went to amsterdam that felt like a place and there's just if you watch like triple nine which is set in atlanta mm -hmm. that's not a movie that makes atlanta feel like a place that's just where they film the movie right and like the just the sense of location is uh, yeah just appreciated really appreciated yeah, uh don't, don't sell yourself short john you live off candler road you're you're experiencing atlanta uh yeah you could you could say that i saw an illegal gun i think <laughs> I think over New Year's Eve, and uh, that's a rare thing to say in Georgia. But yeah, just like uh, not allowed on site. <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, I'm I'm seeing the sights. Uh, your next thing, Pierce. 
So my next thing is my favorite TV show of the year. In a wow. year that I thought was a very good television year. Like yes. truly, I did like similarly, I just kind of make a list of like, here's all the shows I fucked with. And for this year, there's like easily like 20 that I could put down and feel confident in saying like recommending to anybody. Um, but the number one, and I think maybe it's just like my favorite thing I watched in total this year was uh, Andor, which. That is a statement. I, I know. And and I was going to say, too, like, you know this, John, most of the time we end these records, especially when it's just you and me, and we'll stay on the Skype, which like, yes, we, we record on Skype, which is probably the, big, the biggest shock to anyone listening. Um, we are the only podcast in the world, I think, that records over Skype. Uh, but we usually like stay on the record and you and I will just, I, you will just, we will just gripe about the state of movies and blockbusters and Marvel and Disney and Star Wars and all that shit. And so coming from me, who is like full on cynic at this point where I think Marvel, I, the Marvel movies just suck. I think the TV shows are even worse. Uh, Star Wars. I thought the, the Disney stuff has just been pretty terrible across the board for the most part in retrospect, except for Rogue One, I thought was good. And I think Andor is incredible. Like I, I think this show breaks it just breaks the like stereotype you know the biggest gripe we always have is that these movies or these tv shows whatever they are they just don't have a point of view they are made by committee they are made by a corporation to like be another cog in the big story machine that they are trying to tell and andor does that yes it is a prequel to a spin-off movie like that statement is true but it also is showrun and written by tony gilroy and he has an idea, and this show is, you could almost argue, this show is a Trojan horse just for a Tony Gilroy story, right? Like, it is a World War II spy drama set within the world of Nazis and, and you know, grifters and outlaws of that nature. But it is just set, instead of in World War II Germany or wherever the fuck, it is set in star wars world with rebels and empires and droids like you could take the star wars out of the title and this show would still work and i think that is something that is totally void of everything else disney makes and all the other you know big you know ip machines Andor has a point of view it is a story that is about something it has characters and themes and it is i, I just thought it was such a such a revelation within such a just like thoughtless world of promotional content this is like holy fuck like they someone finally did it like i've seen it thrown around a lot like the idea of like it's a star wars story for adults finally which like is true i think but it's but it's not just that it's not just that it is like a story that features like killing in and 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 adult themes and like it isn't spoon feeding you plot but it's also just a story that is about something you know this is a story that is actually about like how rebellions are formed about insurgencies uh, it just has something behind it that i feel like nothing else in star wars as of late has even attempted and so i thought it was just excellent i think the writing's amazing i thought the directing is great it does this really smart thing with its plotting where like it kind of works in these like three episode arcs and and I think like multiple of those three episode arcs are just like, like you get through one of them and I was just like, that's the best thing I'll watch all year. And then the next three episode arc is just even more phenomenal. Like I loved it. Wow. 
uh, I feel I feel like I would I would love this show based on uh, subject matter and the people behind it, like Tony Gilroy, probably best known for Michael Clayton. Yes, I, yeah. I feel like he's been like a, a script doctor kind of guy for a while. It's his brother that made Nightcrawler, Dan Gilroy. Correct. And uh, Tony Gilroy, I'd be hard pressed to think of another thing he made. Duplicity, I think, with uh, yeah. He, I mean, he I love, he, had I love some, he had some hand in the Bourne movies. I don't oh. know exactly where he fit. Either he wrote one or directed. Uh, not directed, but he wrote or produced he one. Might of them. Have, I mean, he might have directed the like post Paul Greengrass ones, like Jason Bourne or the Bourne Legacy. That sounds that's like it. Him. He did. He did the Bourne Legacy. That is right. Okay. Um, but yeah, he's directed a couple of things like Michael Clayton and Duplicity. And I guess that one born movie, his writing is really more what he's like. And like you said, he's kind of a writer for hire um, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. But I, I think the born movies he did right. But um, but I thought this movie, like Michael Clayton is, you know, that movie fucking rules. And mm-hmm. this, this, like, it's not a similar story to Michael Clayton, but it at least has the like, again, it, it has something behind it. Like, this is like a story with something more to it than just, you know, I didn't watch. I don't know Boba Fett, right? But like any of those, I haven't seen any of right. those. And those that that show exists solely because they own the IP to that character. They wanted to spin them off, you know. Like mm-hmm. that's that's why that show exists. Whereas like Andor, like we did not need a show about this guy. Like as you mentioned before, like he yeah, like third he dies at the end of Rogue One. You know, like he, there's that is known going into the story. But what he crafts in the story, and, and, and again, like story, not plot, right? Like in the story, it's like, but it's about how how he gets there. How does the rebellion form? And it does it in like a, in, I know it's going to sound crazy. Maybe I'm overpraising this, but it's going to sound crazy for me to say this, but he does that in like a very grounded real world way where like this rebellion finally, I think for the really maybe one of the few times in any of Star Wars, it actually feels like, a real rebellion like it actually starts to make sense versus mm-hmm. being told this is a rebellion and being told that this is a story about like you know some scrappy upstarts taking down this monolith death star like this move this show actually makes it feel that way uh it does like some really great stuff with like the settings of like this like the town or i mean it's a whole planet i guess but like the town that he starts out starts out in is this like ramshackled working class mining town that like there's just these little flares of like you'll see like you know like a there's this incredible it's not spoiling i'm gonna try not spoil anything but like early on in the show when like some of the i I can't remember but it's like something like some stormtroopers are patrolling the city there's just like a 10 to 15 minute sequence of them just like everyone just starts banging on on metal outside their homes and it just rings out throughout the whole city and you see people scatter and it's just like it's such a like so much of the show is just very real and considered to what this world would be like in in a and I think the like recent JJ Abrams movies just had none of that like it was a story totally void of like any of that shit and this like is really grounded and and it's just i i the more i talk about it i i feel like maybe i'm overhyping it but it did just i did just really love watching it i thought it was so good i mean it's like one of four or five already existing star wars shows with like another five or six on the way mm-hmm. 
So, I mean, yeah, like the idea of it being as good as you're saying sounds crazy on its face, but like they they're bringing in great people. Like like the Mandalorian brought in like what Ronda Rousey or the other UFC fighter, and like that's like a pure action play. But like this one has still in Skarsgård and um, Andy Serkis. Mm -hmm. So it's just like a different quality of actor to go with like a different pedigree. Or, or or gold yeah. setting and like this period like a lot of Star Wars video games I think are set here like in this in the period between like episode three and episode four of like the Star mm -hmm. Wars opera movies so like I mean yeah that all makes sense like there's a lot of storytelling stuff there there's a big gap in the movies and like the important people quote unquote like the big family are still like little children at this point so it wouldn't make any sense to make a thing about them which is seemed like it would be another asset because because the disney trilogy just like ran that thread out like mm -hmm. about who's related to who at this point when yeah there are so this many better ways to go i get a bit of a spoiler but this show does not feature the baby versions of any characters from other movies which is a, a huge plus you know um no it it, it the the performances in the show are really great. It does the thing where like there's like so like Diego Luna's Andor, he's good. Stellan Skarsgard is one of the other big names in it, and he's really great. But like the rest of the cast is people you have like never seen before, but all of them are delivering just like great character actor performances. Like I think most of them come from like British theater or something like that. And it it just it does the thing that the old Star Wars movies do where like the, the rest of the cast of characters are like real people with real faces, you know, and like Cubs or whatever. And, and Star Wars yeah. or, <laughs> or even just like the people who man the Death Star, like, you know, like Grand uh, Moff Tark. I don't know their fucking names, but yeah. um, you know what it is. That's OK. <laughs> I don't know. I'm now. I'm, I, right. I, is it? Is that the guy? Grand Moff Tarkin? Is that? A yeah. Guy? Yeah. He, he mans it. Either way, those were all like back in the you know in the first Star Wars film. It was like you know those were all just like British character actors, and like mm -hmm. this movie kind of brings that back in a way that's like really just again it like helps and kind of envelop you in this world, and like again it's you're not being distracted by like you know flashy guest stars or anything. It's like no, it's just like real people, and then. Uh, the other you know the other thing i would say too is the like how would i say this like the um it's not just like the cast of characters but it's like the the level of story it is choosing to tell right like this is not a show where the end plot is like and we have to like you know they're gonna one like this is not a show about destroying another death star right it's only, it's like quite the opposite it is a show that is like there is not even a death star yet to destroy right so like it is ground level. It is about like minor, like minor choices that these characters make that you know are gonna have rippling effects down the line that will either like lead to the formation of the rebellion or like that's gonna be something that comes up in you know the later films. But it's like it doesn't hit you over the head with it, you know. And it like I just thought I think part of why I love it so much maybe is that I find it so endearing that this was able to happen. That like someone like Tony Gilroy could take the reins of a project and actually make something that has a point of view to it, whereas like all these other shows and all these other movies feel totally lifeless and totally soulless, and like this is the like outlier. So, would you, you know. show this to kids? Is it like TVMA stuff, or is it? <laughs> I mean, 
I would, but like, I don't know if it's not like violent in like a gory sense. You know, one of the best reviews I read of the show, I, I can't remember who said this, but it might have been one of the guys on the watch. I can't remember, but like, again, not a spoiler really, but it's like in the first 10 minutes, Andor shoots another character in the face who is impersonating a police officer essentially. And like from that moment on, it's just like, you know, you're in good hands with the show. Like it is a movie that like there's a show that is actually like taking the risks and showing these things. But it's not like violent in like a sure. In, like a, but it, it, I think it's a little mature in the in the plot. Like I don't know if a kid you could, could show it to a kid, but they wouldn't. They would leave the couch. Uh, maybe I don't know, but like maybe on the other hand, like the fact that it is Star Wars and that they are using like blasters instead of like. World War, you know, instead instead of being set in World War Two, like the fact that it's on spaceships with blasters, maybe that's all that a kid would need. And then, like ten years from now, the kid's gonna look back and be like, "Wow, that movie or that TV show really made me think about like coup d'etats and like South America that the American <laughs> government, you know, overthrew, like things like that, right? Or like I don't like maybe it is just like you should be showing this to a kid because it is it is exactly what maybe like a franchise IP should be, which is like you know, sugar with the pill. Like it is like, mm -hmm. it is like a star Wars story, but it's got some lofty ideas hidden within it, you know? Yeah. I've gleaned some Gilroy interviews where he's doing like a handmaid's tale thing where everything that's in the show needs to be grounded in like a, some real historical incident. Kind Yeah. Kind of, but like not in like a grabby headlines kind of way. Like it is much more, not like like the first episode of Watchmen where it's like doing like a Tulsa massacre thing. Yeah, not that. You can't like no. map the events of Andor onto like Salvador Allende being overthrown for like a fascist dictator in the seventies. No, not not to that extent. There's one really specific example I could I want to give, but I think it would be a little spoilery. But there is, I'll say, there is a depiction of like a prison and a and then like in a prison break that mm -hmm. I think is, like, something you would read about as in, like, a history book that, like, isn't publicized enough. That, like, you'd be like, oh, in, like, somewhere in South America back in, like, the early 1900s, there was this, like, you know, you know something like that, right? But it's not, like, a, a parable, like, a parallel, like, one-to-one -one of, like, something like Handmaid's Tale or something. I gotcha, okay. Yeah. Yeah, like, uh, like, um... Mike Duncan's Revolutions podcast, which wrapped up this year. Mm -hmm. When he did, like, the Russian Revolution, he did, like, a whole 30-minute episode on, like, Stalin being involved in, like, a train robbery before the Tsar was overthrown. Yeah. So, like, yeah, this kind of stuff happens. And, it, it, uh, yeah, that uh, it does sound like I would really go for it. And I, I think you would. Uh, yeah. Uh, my last thing is uh, Star Wars veteran Ryan Johnson uh, returning to mm -hmm. his that universe. For Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery. Uh, original Knives Out came out in 2019. Uh, a lot of fun. Int uh, like uh, idiosyncratic characters. A lot of... Uh, a lot of fairly thudding, if even... If evenly distributed social commentary. Uh, like, people from all sides of the spectrum came in for criticism. Which I feel like is a way to get around any kind of, like, doing any kind of social criticism. Glass Onion is, is doing something similar, and I think I, I like this one better than the original Knives Out. It was just a lot more fun, I think, <laughs> than the original. Uh, still had, a, still had like, some emotional oomph to it. 
I didn't feel talked down to in any way, like in, in a way that I often feel talked down to in movies that are so aggressively trying to be contemporary as Glass Onion is. Uh, incredible sets, incredible costumes, like resurrecting, doing a Tarantino thing where he's like resurrecting potentially people's careers uh, who've been out of the spotlight for a period of time. Fun cameos, just just a lot, just uh, a lot of fun of the movies, and a really I feel uh, Ben Shapiro has said he feels differently on Twitter. <laughs> Damn it, John. I literally pulled up the tweet and I was going to act <laughs> as if that was my review. I feel that that's a very clever uh, adaptation of of a genre that everybody knows going in that like there's going to be twists. <laughs> yes. To lie to you. Uh, things are going to happen from different perspectives and you're only going to see only one perspective and then maybe you'll see another later on in the movie. People have been making these movies and telling these stories for like hundreds of years None of that is surprising, and it's still I, managed to surprise me in certain places. Not only that, it, it's the sequel to another movie that does the same shit. Like, yeah. Like, uh, it's just to, to um, shit on Ben Shapiro as much as we can. Like, what a moron. Like, sorry. Like, actually, not sorry. No, fuck that guy. Like, what a fucking idiot. I'm sorry. Yeah. It's just so dumb. There, but, uh, yeah. The guys, if we can quick sidebar, the guys over at Daily Wire are, like, trying to make movies. Uh, yes. You know, whatever. I want to give any filmmaker a chance a good movie is a good movie i don't really give a shit where it comes from <laughs> okay well either way, i just want it on the record i don't like the daily wire <laughs> i don't like the daily wire if they want to fund a movie you know i would watch it, <laughs> okay. if it provided it passes through my usual gatekeepers uh, and it gets on my radar i would be open to it back to glass onion H- have you seen this pierce and yes, it did. I watched it at home on Netflix the day it came out. Um, I very much enjoyed Knives Out. I thought as a as a genre piece, I thought it was uh, refreshing. Um, I enjoyed the theater experience, and I think that was the biggest thing missing for me with Glass Onion was like, you know, not I I, I don't know the business side of the whole thing, but like this movie should have been in theaters. This totally bad. Totally yeah. bad. Yeah, like, I just think it would have worked better in a theater. I thought the comedy especially. I think there's, like, a real lack of, like, especially Christmas Day, which, like, my family, my mom, my brother, and I, like, usually try to go see a movie. And there's nothing to see this year. Like, she was not going to sit through three-plus hours of The Way of Water. And and so we just didn't go to a movie. It's like, this would have been the right one. So uh, that aside, like, the movie itself, I thought it was okay. I didn't like it as much as the first one. I... You know, the mystery of it is fun. I Again, I like this genre, and I think Ryan Johnson does, like, a fun thing with it. Um, I, I think, for me, the comedy in the movie was, like, okay. You know, I wasn't really sitting at home laughing. Um, maybe if I was in a theater, I would have. I don't know. Um, and for me, really, the, the part that really, like, I, I felt disconnected me from the story was the, like, these characters and their backstory and like that whole part of the movie just like didn't work for me at all for like for a movie that like I think part of the thrill and fun of the movie is like this like big cast of characters they they pull together and actors that they get to come you know play these kind of like outlandish kind of roles like a Dave Bautista or even like I liked Catherine Hahn or, or Janelle Monet who gets to play kind of you know this interesting role I just felt like 
the putting of the, the forcing of them together and like trying to force this backstory just like fully did not work for me. Um, but I found it enjoyable, but not great. Um, I guess that's where I would land. Yeah, I I hear those complaints like they're not really friends. Yeah, that's the worst part of the movie is when they show but them. I think, I think the movie contrives a pretty good way for that. Like they don't want to necessarily like they know what everybody did to each other. And being around each other is not, you know, a, a pleasant memory, especially when Janelle Nene's character is also there. So, like, their lack of, like, friendly chemistry, I, I thought, totally worked. Uh, it, it just, like, for the further control of them by uh, Ed Norton's character, I, 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 thought, I thought all that made sense. And I, and I really, like, connected to Janelle Monet's character and like what happened, I don't know. I'm being vague necessarily for yeah. kind of reasons I don't really know why. Uh, I, I did really connect with her, uh, how she's treated and how she reacts to uh, certain developments. Mm-hmm. And the mystery not being a mystery so much as just like breaking this spell this character has over them. Yeah. Who, uh, the funniest moment in the movie, um, like they should have figured this guy out when he shows up at their at their bar in a very specific costuming choice that yeah. I just yeah. absolutely loved. See, I, I liked some of that. I liked that, right? I liked... It's a very referential... You know, Knives Out was this way, too. I think this one more kind of doubled down on that like, kind think, of referential... absolutely more so. Yeah, and, like, you know, to talk about, like, kind of almost, like, ripped from the headlines, but, like, more, like, ripped from, like, the the like t- shit posting tweets kind of like like it's like there's a joe rogan you know parallel character there's kind of like the the uh, you know elon musk parallels or or mark zuckerberg or whoever like that stuff i was a little not that i didn't think it didn't work but i was just like not charmed by like i i was not like i don't know i just thought it was okay um i just didn't and then I by didn't the end of the movie into it i thought those were types instead of specifics like everybody's talking about Elon Musk now, so they make that connection. Even though I didn't necessarily think that, that had to be Elon Musk, it's just it's any of a hundred people. No, I know. Yeah, I know what you're saying. Dave Batista is any of a hundred like masculinity types. Yeah, who has sure. a terrible podcast. Yes, yeah, that I, I yes, I, I, that's right. I meant yeah, that I do think yeah, people. It's not like a one to one, but it's a thing of like. I don't know. It's almost like the jokes the movie we're making are just like the jokes I've just been reading every day on Twitter. And so therefore, like, it's not the movie's fault necessarily or like Ryan Johnson. Like, and you'd think it would almost be to like the movie's benefit that like this movie is coming out at almost like a, you know, with everything that's happened with Twitter and Elon Musk, it's almost like insane that this movie is coming out right at this moment. But I don't know. For me, it just was like, it's still, it's, it's just, I didn't love it, I guess. And I know a lot of people did. And then I know that then there's like the other side of the spectrum of people who are now like backlashing to the yeah reception. But it's like, like it because this person doesn't. Yeah, yeah that, that's all stupid. But like, I'm, I'm just kind of in the middle where I like, I thought it was enjoyable, but you know, not, it did, it, it kind of just, and again, it's maybe because I watched it at home, but like, I just thought the first one was a little more grandiose and a little more cinematic and a little more like, I don't know. I just this one just felt a little more direct to streaming sequely, but and maybe and because it was maybe I don't know. I mean, I I did see this in theaters uh, in on like a 
I want to say a matinee on a weekday. Still maybe like a dozen or so, two dozen people in the theater. And and yes, it was fun to see with other people, like other people's mm-hmm. reactions and to he and like specifically like hearing those reactions. That it just I mean, I've I've really come around on um seeing movies with other people this year. Like yes. in Barbarian an earlier podcast episode, and that's probably my number one like theater experience this year is seeing seeing people react to that movie as it was progressing was yeah. like added maybe like a whole letter grade. To to, you know, to, I guess to go back to the Ben Shapiro criticism, you know, like a lot of people, which, which again, fuck that guy. Sure. A lot of people are making fun of him for like, you know, this like, you know, the, the, the overused Twitter joke of the week was like, you know, Ben Shapiro gets like coin pulled out from behind his ear and complains, you know, that like critiques that like, how am I supposed to know the coin was behind my ear? Like, you know, but it's like this movie almost does function in that way where it is just like a magic trick that you're supposed to just have fun with in the moment and almost like, you know, and I guess if you're just watching it at home alone on streaming, that effect is lessened. And, and it could just be as simple as that. And I I guess, and it's not that I'm like, I'm not anti, I'm not anti this movie first and foremost, but like, I'm not down on this movie because, you know, it's not, it's not like an industry thing where I'm like, why are movies coming out on streaming? I'm going to hold it against this movie that it's on streaming. I really do think it's like a impact thing where like the movie is just less impactful if you're seeing it at home on a, on a, on a TV versus in a theater. But, but again, I, and again, I liked it. I thought it was good. I just didn't love it. Yeah. Yeah. And like that magic trick nature is just like such a fundamental part of movies like watch Mulholland Drive, watch any David Lynch movie, watch Babylon, which we mentioned, like that's a big part of it. Like everything that goes into the creation of this shot, like if you saw everything that led up to it, you would not be as enchanted. Yeah. <laughs> if you saw the extra tuck his boner back into his waistband before getting like the the centerpiece single tier shot. Right. The single tier becomes less valuable. R- remind me uh at the end of this if we if we don't go too long, let me, I want to tell you my Babylon story of how I saw Babylon, but I'll save it for the end. Uh, why don't you tell us about uh, your Top Gun Maverick uh, okay. experience? So yeah, so my Babylon experience was probably the weirdest in theater experience I had uh, in 2022. Top Gun was probably the best in theater experience I had in 2022 and in like a number of years for, you know, obviously mm-hmm. for many reasons, but it, you know, it's all been said before with this movie, I'm sure. But it is a thrill ride. Like, it delivers. And I think that is rare, especially for big blockbusters. It is really rare to get something that is this kind of high, high you know, high, I don't know, you, it, high intensity, I guess. Like, like, it has these action sequences that just feel, you know, fervent and, and electric and real. Whereas, like, you know, to... To bring back up the Marvel stuff, like those movies just don't have, and most movies that come out, you know, whatever they are now, just like don't have this level of like, I don't know what it is exactly, but it's not just intensity, but it is like tangible. This movie like makes you feel something when you're sitting in that theater chair, and it just delivers. And I think I I enjoy, I enjoy that the plot is dumb. I enjoy that the plot is simple. I enjoy that it is essentially like the first, you know, act of the movie is, like, getting this guy exactly where you know he's going to end up. 
And then the second act is like, now we got to set up the mission. And then the third act is them executing that mission. Like, I liked that that is what this movie is. There is nothing more to it. Uh, you know, it does bring in characters from the other film and it does do stuff like that. But like, ultimately, this movie is like, we're going to watch some people fly some jets. And that's great. And it was, and it so delivered on that. Um, you know, it's my, I, you know, I would give it, I don't think it's like a five-star movie necessarily, but it's certainly as a, as a spectacle, as a thing to go see in the theater, it was the best thing I saw this in 2022 by, you know, a mile. Yeah. I, I, I am not as high on it uh, as you, but I, I, I do think it's the movie of the year. I don't begrudge anything that happens to it in award season. If mm-hmm. it wins technical Oscars, if it wins acting Oscars, which sounds insane. If it wins like best director for Joseph Kaczynski, if it wins best picture, all of the, all of that is possible. And it wouldn't bother, it wouldn't bother me in the least. Yeah. I feel it, like it you know, Tom Cruise. I, and this is a movie that I did miss out on. I saw this also in a matinee, maybe like a few, a few weeks after it had been released. Still people in the theaters, but either they had already seen it or it was just early in the day. It would have, I think, really been something to see this in a packed theater. Yeah. Which I, I saw it. Experience. I, I took my mother to see it and we both had a great time. Um, you know, Tom Cruise, to mention him, like, I, you know, I do, the performance is what it is. Like, I don't think. I don't think he really should win an Oscar. Like if you really, if you, if you gave me like a truth serum, like, no, like, is he really delivering an incredible performance? No, but like what he's doing is unique in that he it is just a movie star performance that he, with like a half smile and a turn of his head and a look into the camera, just can fucking command a full audience, uh, like a yeah. packed theater. And they're just fucking, and when I was watching this movie, all I, I was thinking repeatedly about like, there's aren't actors who do this anymore. Like he, he's unique in, in many ways. And we'll talk about some of them, I guess, but like, that is just something that, you know, the movie itself is, you know, it, it goes so well with the movie, right? Like it parallels the story of like this man with a specific set of skills, who's the only one who can fly the mission. And Tom Cruise himself is like this man called out of retirement to come back and just fucking be a movie star. Cause no one else can do it. Mm-hmm. And and it it just does it does work and and is that like a great Oscar performance? No, but like it is a great movie star performance. Now on top of that too, I would say is that like with this and the Mission Impossible movies, he is also saving movies in the sense that he is just like I'm gonna do the fucking stunt and it's gonna and the way it comes off on screen is gonna make you feel different than a green screen stunt that features you know chris evans and whoever else right like two things on i don't that. know if you watch yeah did, did you see the video oh the, like the, the mission impossible stunt video yes i did yes incredible that played before my showing of avatar in like imax and it was fucking the it was like the crowd in that packed theater was almost eclipsed any moment in avatar like it was incredible and I'm all in. I thought, that, honestly, like, the last time I felt this way about a movie in the theater was Mission Impossible Fallout, which I thought was also great. So, like, I'm all in. This movie delivers. Three things. Uh, yeah. One, to contrast Tom Cruise. Tom Hanks is about to open a <laughs> language adaptation of a, uh, I want to say, Norwegian movie that, if it makes $10 million, I feel like that will success 
Uh, I, two, I'm not convinced that movie is real. I'm convinced it is a UPS ad of some sort. I didn't I like know. the Norwegian version, and I feel like there is no chance that the American version has found anything new to say about a very boring and trite story. Uh, but that's what Tom Hanks does now. Like He's overshadowed by Austin Butler to an insane degree in Elvis. Mm-hmm. He's Tom Hanks. Uh, I knew I was not going to remember all three. I missed... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, three, Babylon, also, the screening of Babylon I watched in a mostly, in almost an entirely empty, like, main plaza theater, also had the thank you for coming to the movies moment mm-hmm. in Babylon in a packed theater, like Margaret Robbie saying this. And it's just, again, like, you wouldn't catch Tom Cruise even putting himself, at this stage of his career, you wouldn't catch him putting himself in that position where he could be embarrassed. Like the brand management that he is doing mm-hmm. successfully, in spite of everything, is <laughs> incredible. Is 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 incredible. Is absolutely incredible. Yeah. yeah, he it it is a surreal level of charm that he possesses. That again, it's like that's what makes a movie star. It is this intangible, yeah, you know, uh, unexplainable thing that like he's got it. And like I don't know what happened in the world, but it is gone. You know. Um, even in this movie, actually, I'll, I'll take that back. In this movie, I do think Glenn Powell uh, touches. He's he's he could go in that direction. He's I don't got think that it's thing. I it's don't not the same. It. It's been five years since everybody wants some. It's not going to happen. Yes. For him. Everybody keeps talking about this like it's going to happen. It's not going to happen. Yeah. He was in a movie I, that potentially could have been a really nice, like a uh, side piece to Top Gun Maverick in devotion mm-hmm. uh, no just uh, like state of state of theaters whatever just like nobody saw that yeah no i i yes i also don't i don't think it's going to happen for him but he's got like a natural charm to him yeah that, I, he's great that's he's in great. that direction for him. but uh but to, to to segue that into like the younger cast of this movie i do think it was good like i don't really like miles teller frankly but I thought he was okay in this. I like Glenn Powell. I root for Glenn Powell. And I thought he was well cast. He, you know, I was just thinking about this just on a Glenn Powell tangent. You know what I think is like a big miss for him? That like, I think, I obviously this movie, this movie's not out yet. But like, I watched like, or I've seen the Barbie trailer and the Barbie stills. Mm-hmm. And like, Glenn Powell should be in that movie. Not fucking Ryan Gosling. Like, Ryan Gosling is like 40 something and has like been the dreamboat. Like, Glenn Powell should have those roles. Like that's that's my big. I'm gonna stump for Glenn Powell needs more like leading man romantic roles where he yeah. is like playing off his handsomeness and his charm. So that's that's my quick thing there. But I think the uncast works. I think the story, like the story they choose to tell in this movie, is not too like we're building a franchisey type of thing. It is just like a it fits. I, I I think the pushback on this movie that I would give is that like I frankly don't. I don't really care about the Jennifer Connelly stuff. I don't really think he yeah, needed I, a love interest. I do. I did like that quite a bit. Interesting. You liked when he was like sneaking out of her bedroom and stuff. It was cute. He's not. A, he <laughs> he just doesn't have. He does not have sexual chemistry with anybody. Probably Correct. since Eyes Wide Shut. Maybe I haven't seen Vanilla Ooh, Sky. Yeah. The other possibility. Uh, Some would argue he doesn't. He doesn't really have sexual chemistry in Eyes Wide Shut. To 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 the point of the movie almost sure yeah yeah, yeah. that's a good point uh like mission impossible fallout 
is not is is like third or fourth on my favorite Mission Impossible movies because oh. because it brings back his wife. That that part is not good. I do agree, but the the movie rules. Um, it is quite good, and I picked it up at like a used uh, uh, Blu-ray place yeah. in Brownsville while I was up there for Christmas. I bought like twenty. I bought new shelving. I'm feeling it out quickly. It's like a, it's like an anti-urbanist kind of thing where you like put more lens on a highway <laughs> and just more cars show up to fill them up. It doesn't actually make yeah. traffic easier. I'm already again almost out of shelving. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, um, I remember my third thing from earlier. Like, um, I just posted a review at MediaCommunity.club about uh, Thor: Love and Thunder. Uh, Pierce, mm-hmm. maybe you know this, but would you care to guess? Uh, which movie costs more, Thor: Love and Thunder or Top Gun: Maverick? Well, by the nature of you asking this question at this of moment, course, yes. I'm guessing it's Thor: Love and Thunder. Sure. Yes. Uh, would you like to guess how much Thor: Love and Thunder, the production budget of it, was? Uh, you know, I'm I'm bad with stuff like that. I you, they they talk about this on. I was just listening to like a blank check check episode, and they mentioned this about like movie how much movies cost and why, and like you're essentially you're like. You know, it's like you're creating a small business that you then have to run for like a couple mm-hmm. months. Uh, yeah, I do not. I don't know. Is it like two hundred million dollars? Two fifty million. I don't know. I'm bad with numbers. I, I that's like you're exposing something in me here, where like I, I, I'm bad at stuff like that. Thor: Love and Thunder cost two hundred fifty million dollars to Top Gun: Mavericks one hundred seventy million. Oh, okay. So I was in the right ballpark. Okay. Yeah, but okay. you couldn't. If you told me Thor: Love and Thunder costs like eighty million dollars, I would believe that. Yeah, well, because that movie looks, it looks like shit. shit too. It looks yeah. like absolute shit, and yeah. uh, that like that's for me like that's the story. Twenty twenty two, just like Marvel completely yeah. stuff their own dick, and like and me being able to to walk away, like to, to wash my hands and be like, we're going we're going case by case in the future, mm-hmm. uh, and and I don't feel obligated to watch these movies anymore. But yeah, like Top Gun Maverick, if you told me it cost $300 million, I would believe you because it's on the screen. It's not a money laundering organization where like all this money is being poured into this small business that's been created, as you say, and like just disappearing. Where Mm -hmm. is it going? Where like, yeah, all all the Top Gun Maverick looks expensive (laughs) and just the practical nature of it. Is is in stark relief to what audiences get served up from like from major blockbusters these days, and I'm sure that contributed in no small amount to how enthusiastic people were for it. Yeah, it, it, it it's one of the rare, you know, it's a rare, it's it's a one of a kind kind of movie in a way where like the build up to it, and you know, being this like legacy sequel, and then COVID delaying it, and kind of. Cruz and his like over the course of the pandemic you know that audio of him leaking about like you know whatever the quote he gave about like we're saving this industry or whatever he says yeah and then this movie really does deliver on that in some way you know like it really is like a sit in a theater watch it and remind yourself why you love movies kind of movie which is bizarre to say but it it kind of is true yeah like it rhymes for me with like uh Argentina winning the world cup or just Mm -hmm. like the story is perfect. Yeah. <laughs> the story couldn't have gone any better. And mm-hmm. the story of, like, this is, like we mentioned earlier, like, this, this movie was finished in 2019 and could have been released in 2019. And 
a major studio holding on to a production this expensive mm-hmm. and this potentially lucrative for three years and just watching the bet pay off critically, commercially, for the industry itself is 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 why like again for me it's this the movie of the year even if i don't think it's it's it, even if it's going to come nowhere close like my top movies of the year mm-hmm. yeah it's i honestly as i talk about it more it's like fuck this should be my number one movie fuck it like it's if it's just about loving movies <laughs> i fucking loved this movie so it could easily be my number one and i feel no shame yeah totally fair uh stuff that you feel like you've missed as we wrap up, like, um, what do you need? What do you feel like the need, the need to watch? So like putting the period on this year. Yeah, I mean, there's like some of the more, the stuff that was not as widely released is always what kind of ends up, you know, at the end of the year for me. So, like I said before, like all the beauty in the bloodshed is like I have not found that to be available anywhere yet, and like yeah, when that question. is, I will watch it, and I'm sure it will be devastating in some way. Uh, decision to leave similarly is like I have not had a place to watch that yet so like when when I do I will go see it um, you know I started and we didn't talk about this movie I think at all on, on any pods yet but I started RRR and I just did not get into it oh and, wow but, but I, I didn't get too far into it I'll say but like that is a movie that I think if I gave my attention to I'm sure I would very much like but I just like I don't know what it was that day, but I just like couldn't couldn't get into it. Um, and then there's like the smaller movies, like like an After Yang. Like I didn't see that. I've I've had it available for me to watch now for months, and I just didn't didn't take the time. So like maybe that movie is really great, um, but you know those are like some of the big misses, I guess for me. But um, mm-hmm. you know beyond that, there's nothing too 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 big, I guess. I don't know. It's like. It's a, it's a year where there's not, you know, like my, my, I was looking at my list here on Letterboxd, like my four through eight or four through seven, right? Like I've got Nope, Banshees of Inisherin, Armageddon Time, everything everywhere all at once. And like all those movies I liked, but I just didn't, like it didn't leave me with a lot. Like Banshees of Inisherin and Nope, like I liked both those movies, but leaving the theater and then like now months later, like. I don't know. I don't really have much thoughts. So everything, everywhere, all one similarly. Like that's. I don't know where that ranks on your list. I'm sure if Jr. was here, he would. I'm sure he would talk about it. Like, I liked it. I thought it was fun. I I I thought it was creative, and I thought like, I certainly loved that it was like this countercultural thing to, uh, what was it, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. Like I liked that aspect of this movie, but as a movie as a whole, it just like, it wasn't my thing. So, yeah. You know, Stuff like I, that. The people that are raving about it, it's for, for in regards to that movie, like it's the same thing as After Sun, where like I really I, I appreciate parts of it. Um, I appreciate its audacity, and it, it is a very fun movie. But people keep posting like the line of uh, the Waymond character talking about, "I'd prefer to be doing you know whatever he says, taxes and laundry with you." Yeah. The- it just, yeah. it, it just, it, it, nothing, nothing. Hmm. Like, I, thought, I can't imagine watching that movie and being like, "Oh my gosh, I'm a, I'm a sobbing mess." As so many people have said that they were afterwards. Like, it's just not, it's, it can't manage. It, that movie does a lot of things, but it can't manage that kind of tone. For yeah, 
for me the the comedy at times was like not my thing like you know like the butt plug stuff like that's like sure. not yeah my thing and then i also thought which i understand this is like kind of the, the point of the movie but like by the end of it I, I was almost like this is almost too many too many things you know <laughs> like like by the end i was like when it got to like the which i thought was a really creative idea but like the rocks talking to each other like even that i was like okay I, I don't know it just wasn't i couldn't like i don't know it just wasn't my thing i guess is how i describe it like i think it is good and i think it's cool that that's a movie that people latched on to and, and promoted and i'm glad that movie was successful but like just wasn't my style i don't know yeah that's fair uh, as far as what i'm missing like there's i i do feel like i've got my arms pretty well wrapped around uh the whole year to the point where i could put it i could like i wouldn't it, I mean, it's dumb to say, but like, I wouldn't feel bad about posting my uh, top twenty tomorrow if I got to, if I got my shit together and and, and wrote it. Uh, I, there are definitely a lot of like small, um, intense documentaries about harsh topics that I always find my way to. One of them we talked about uh, in our "What Have You Been Watching" episode we did recently, three minutes three minutes of lengthening. Um, that's going to be in my top twenty. And there are a lot of movies like that. Like Matthew Heineman is a documentary director I really like. He gets extremely raw footage. Like you are there on the ground filming what he's, or like with him as he's filming. And uh, he released a documentary about the withdrawal from Afghanistan this year. I can't remember what it's called. Here or there. Uh, that one is high on my list of stuff to catch up on. Uh, All Quiet on the Western Front seems like Netflix's play for like prestige pictures this year. I've read that book. I like war pictures generally, and like nobody tends to make movies about World War One just because it is so depressing and pointless. So all those are assets, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I feel like I would like that. And the no, the abs, the movie that I absolutely feel like I have to see before putting out my top twenty is a movie called Athena, which is on Netflix. The director of that, whose name I is like is Lodge Lee, I want to say a French guy of perhaps African descent. Uh, he made a movie uh, called Les Miserables in 2019 or 2020. He made it, that was in 2020, early 2020. Uh, that was about uh, other French people of African descent in like the, in the Bonlous, which we would, we, you know, we would call them slums or ghettos here in America and uh, their interactions with the police. And essentially it being the exact same as uh, minorities interactions with the police here. Uh, that movie ends with the beginnings of a riot, and Athena is not connected to Les Miserables in my understanding, but it is the story of like a public urban uprising. And my understanding of it is it's it's extremely intense, extremely like muscularly single take film of huge sets and huge casts of extras all doing their own thing. And uh, a lot of riot police and a lot of furious protesters and slash rioters. And um, I've seen that movie landing on a lot of top tens. And that I, I, I thought the name was Arab was great. And it very much seems like Athena is like the next step for this guy where he's been giving more, given more money and more access and more ability to like press his vision into a, 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 very, a very intense place. And uh, that is that is a movie that I just have to have to get out of the way. Uh, but yeah, other than that, I feel like yeah, I've pretty much seen everything. Like 
we mentioned in the sight and sound and the sight and sound podcast that I've taken a big step backwards from watching movies at home over this year, which means that I've been watching more movies in theaters and we'll thank the Regal Crown Club for that, which again is a great deal so much that I feel like I'm stealing from this public company. I feel like they're fools for allowing this program to exist. And I take full advantage of it. Like I'm watching like 50 free movies a year, basically. <laughs> it's not more. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm way ahead of my usual pace as far as new releases. And, uh, yeah, as like we, we've singled out some great movies, uh, over the course of this podcast, but yeah, uh, as far as like uh, the year in total, pretty. So can, can I tell you about my single worst viewing experience of, oh, yeah, please. so recently last week I'm on winter break. It's like eight. You know, it's like eight o'clock. I check. I'm like bored at home. I got nothing to do that night. I check Fandango, see what's playing. And I see that there's an 815 showing of Babylon at North DeKalb Mall, which, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, you've been there, you know, only guy that's the theater I grew up going to as a kid. It is the now the shittiest theater in the world. And I had forgotten exactly what a viewing experience at North DeKalb Mall was like. Uh, so I sped my way to Norticat Mall to make it there in time. And I got there and I go walk into the theater. First off, they told me the wrong uh, they told me the wrong theater because none of the theaters have the movie that's playing like scrawl going across the door. Like mm. they just don't do that for whatever reason, even though they have the, the little screens <laughs> there. I don't know why they do it. So at first I walked into a showing of Avatar. And I was like, the movie, sh-, like, I got there a little late. So I was like, it should already be showing the previews. So I asked someone, like, what is this? And they were like, Avatar. And I was like, okay. So then I just had to go find Babylon. And I walk in. <laughs> it is an empty theater. Except for, in the back row, are two teenagers, oh, presumably no. having sex. Oh, my. Uh, they were positioned in a way that did not seem like they were sitting and watching the previews. <laughs> so I went and I sat down, like... <laughs> 10 rows in front of them and i was like whatever <laughs> so then any the eye movies, contact did they acknowledge your presence as they you did in? they saw that i walked in and then that was the last i ever looked at them because i was like i i am not looking back there <laughs> and it was an empty theater so it was like you know no one else but us um and then we started watching babylon and i was not really enjoying the movie at all i kind of didn't like that movie very much whatsoever i thought it just did not work for me and then <laughs> throughout the movie, like these two kids were like getting up and just like bored clearly and like doing, I don't know what they were even doing. And then like every so often, like people would kind of walk in and out of the theater. The and fuck? then like, I guess like two hours into the movie, which is like only two thirds of the way. Cause it's like three hours long. Yeah. I just noticed like a lot of people were like walking in and then walking out and like walking in and walking out to a screening of Babylon. That's two hours in. So I was like, what the fuck's going on? And then I finally figured out, like, this mom and her kid were walking in repeatedly, looking at the screen, walking back out. And I could tell that, like, just nobody knew where their movie was supposed to be playing because (laughs) the the guy taking tickets just didn't know the theater numbers. And they weren't showing the names of the movies above the door. So, like, no one knew where to go. (laughs) And then, weirdly, and I've kind of pieced this together now, but at the time I just could not make sense of it. A dude just walked in while talking on his phone sat down in this mostly empty theater that was already showing a movie and just continued to talk on the phone. <laughs> and that was the moment where I was like, you know what? 
I don't like this movie. This is really weird. I'm just leaving. And so I just walked out like two hours into Babylon. Um, <laughs> and I figured now I think that guy just thought that was like a preview for another movie and just was there early for like Avatar or whatever the fuck. But like as I was walking out, the mom and her kid are yelling at the dude at the front being like, like literally verbatim, she yelled at him like, we've been in that theater. That's not the movie. Like just yelling at this dude. <laughs> and I was like, I'm out of here. I'm never coming back. It was it was the worst. And I hated the movie, too, which was the worst part. Uh, I, I I did like Babylon. I think it just overpowered me at a certain point. I think I like I, I that score is so that I love the score. Mm. I love the score of Babylon. I've listened to it a lot in the Hannah Flood days since I've watched it. Mm. Um, I mean, you left. Th- that's the worst hour, I think, pretty easily. The last hour. Yeah, I was exhausted of that movie. I, I, my real review of that movie, and maybe some of this was informed by my viewing experience, sure, but like my real view of that movie is just like from the opening scene, I was exhausted by it. Like, it just seems it's, it's a movie that is trying so hard. And I think, like, like, I thought a lot about like Boogie Nights with it because it's like it's kind of doing a Boogie Nights thing at, at moments where it's yeah. kind of just like floating yeah. through this party. And like, but Boogie Nights just feels effortless when you're watching it. And it's like, this is a movie that is just like screaming at you versus like getting its point across. Like it just did not work for me, but I don't know. I, I did. I think a lot of the critics have, have that like it, what kind of, it all comes back to it. I was, it seems like is like, it wasn't ambitious and I respect that. And like, I, I guess I agree with that. You know, like that's the best thing this movie has going for it is like, it is going for something. I just didn't like what it was going for. Yeah. I mean, there there's an equivalent Alfred Molina in Boogie Nights scene in that last hour with Tobey Maguire in the Alfred Molina role. Mm. And, it, it, yeah, that was probably my least favorite part of the movie. It It, it is just uh, uninspired, like, just basement levels. Like, if you're going to if you're going to put weird shit in the basement, commit. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we were talking about, like, Bones and All and Crimes of the Future. Uh, I mean, I believe people are up to weird shit in nineteen early nineteen thirties Hollywood. Like, show me some weird shit, and and yeah, it's uh, it's not it's not fully committed. I would definitely agree with that. Um, yeah, that's a shame. Yeah, and my biggest thing is I'm really curious. Like, I really wanted to make it to the end of that movie so that I could turn to the two teenagers that clearly just had nowhere else to be. So they just like went in an empty theater, but I really just wanted to turn to them and just be like, "What did you think that movie was about? Like, what? Like, what did you like? What? Like, of all the movies that you have now sat through in your life, it is so bizarre that you have sat through Babylon. <laughs> but you know, I'll never know. Yeah, that's all fair. That's all fair. I I enjoyed it. I I, I got to say, I enjoyed it. Uh, as as confrontational and and like and and try hard as you say it is. I mean, I wouldn't disagree with that. Uh, yeah, AMC North to Cab. I argue, arguably the worst theater in the country. I think that's totally fair. You just never know what kind of seat you're going to sit in. Like, is this going to sink to the floor? They, yes. they uh, truly are bad looking. Like, I, like, they look gross. Like, they're stained and shitty. Like, it's crazy. Yeah. I, I assume that that mall's been bought and is yes. in the midst of being, in the midst of planning to be redeveloped. Yeah. I gotta think the theater would also be in for an upgrade because people go to that theater. Yeah, I, it, it well, what I love about it, uh, it, it it's like that. It's a weird branch of AMC where like it's the cheap tickets. I forget mm-hmm. what there's a name for them, 
it's like it's like AMC hometown or something like vaguely racist. But um, it is like eight dollar ticket. Like my ticket was like eight bucks, which is why I didn't feel bad walking out. Oh yeah, like, yeah. You know what? Fuck it. Pre Regal Club, Regal Cl- Crown Club. Uh, that was my number one theater. Like, go see a matinee there on a Sunday. Go get lunch. Go get groceries. Easy. Yeah. That, that's a that's a good Sunday. But yeah, the equivalent of that for Regal is like Regal Hollywood. But that's up by Buford Highway. So you're by Buford Highway. Like, I'll stomach a subpar showing of a movie if I get to like eat fantastic food. Sure. <laughs> that all sounds fine. Uh, that'll do us for this episode of the Media Community Club. Again, 2022, a bit of a letdown movie-wise, but still a lot of great stuff to be found. And a lot of great stuff that we haven't found ourselves, I'm sure. It must exist. Uh, check us out on the internet at MediaCommunity.club. Like us on Facebook at Club and Twitter at MediaCommunity.com. Uh, and Instagram at MediaCommunity.club. Um, our next trio of movies, again, as I said, uh, 2022 awards bait. We mentioned all three movies, uh, Elvis, and Banshees of Inishirin and RRR, which I'm excited to see. I've seen those first two movies. I haven't seen RRR yet. And I think I've needed that extra push. I feel like the transfer to Netflix isn't great. I've heard that said by people. Mm. And I certainly miss the opportunity to see it in theaters here, which I have heard is is the way to go. But, you know, I'm kind of surprised it hasn't come back. And But what's probably going to happen is I'm going to watch it on Netflix and then like the plaza is going to have it shown in theaters. And... I, there's no way. <laughs> there's no way I would go see a three-hour movie twice in like a month. Uh, but yeah, I'm excited to figure out what people are so excited about with RRR. The clips that I've seen look insane. Thank you for joining me tonight, Pierce, for this marathon podcast session. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Have a good night.